Hello again, Hallows Church. And greetings to all our friends and guests who've tuned in today. We are so glad that you have. My name is Andrew, and I serve as a pastor with our faith family. And man, I miss being with you all in person. I pray that we will worship in the same room again soon. But until then, here we are. And as you can see, the votes have been counted. Uh, feedback has been considered. And the quarantine stash is here. So you're welcome for that. And if my stash has not scared you away by now, I want to thank you. Thank you for, for sticking in there with me. And, and I also want to invite you to grab your Bibles and join me in Acts chapter 18. Just open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. You know, we planted the Hallows Church in Seattle a little over eight years ago. And it's been by far the most challenging thing I've ever done, but it's also been the most rewarding. The reason we planted this church and the reason we are committed to planting more churches is because Jesus is worthy. We want to introduce as many people as possible to the difference Jesus makes in all of life. Now, we may be on the cusp of witnessing a remarkable amount of gospel-saturated life change sweeping our city. Oftentimes, Jesus shows himself strongest in our weakest moments, so we rest assured that Jesus is still moving in our city and around the world, even though our movements are currently restricted. As many of you know, my mind has been occupied by many psalms over the past several weeks, and last week the Lord was kind enough to meet me in Psalm 69. In it, the writer describes what it feels like to be utterly helpless. The psalmist is sunk in deep mud. He's come into deep water, and a flood is sweeping over him. He can't get himself out of the situation he's in, so he cries out to God for help. And if I'm honest with you today, that's exactly how I feel. I feel stuck. I feel helpless. I feel overwhelmed. And all I can do is cry out to God for help. Honestly, coming out of the most challenging year of this journey, that being 2019, I, I had high hopes for 2020. I thought 2020 would be much better. I didn't think things could get worse, but so far it has. So far, 2020 hasn't been much better than 2019. Given the pandemic and all that is happening in the world, the limitations and restrictions that have been placed upon our lives and upon our church's ministry. But then in verse 13, God was kind enough to call my attention to verse 13. And, and there we find the psalmist who is struggling, voicing a prayer that, that I'm owning in my life right now. In verse 13, the psalmist prays, But as for me, Lord, my prayer to you is for a time of favor. In your abundant, faithful love, God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the miry mud. Don't let me sink. And that is what the Spirit has prompted me to pray for myself. That is what the Spirit has prompted me to pray for our church. And I'm asking you today to join me in asking God to give us a time of favor. That he would show himself strong in our weaknesses. That he would add to our number day by day those who are being saved. That we would know his nearness and be in awe of his activity like never before. That he would grant us a respite from a rather challenging stretch of life and ministry. You know, in Acts chapter 18, God gives the Apostle Paul a type of respite. He leads Paul into a time of favor. 
Now the events of this passage take place towards the back end of Paul's second missionary journey, which was a challenging journey for him, definitely the most challenging one by up to that point in his life. It was a journey that began when he and his friend Barnabas had a falling out in their gospel partnership. And then Paul wanted to go to Asia, but God told him no and sent him in a different direction. And this different direction led him to Philippi, where he was severely flogged and put in prison stocks. And while he was in prison, he endured an earthquake that wrecked the city. When he got out of prison, the police and the magistrates told him he had to leave the city. He then went to Thessalonica, where a mob riot broke out, and his friend Jason got beaten. Next, he went to Berea, and there he was opposed by an agitated and hostile crowd. He goes to Athens, where he is mocked and ridiculed for preaching the resurrection of Jesus. By the time we reach chapter 18, Paul needs a break. He needs some relief. He needs a time of favor, so to speak. And if you follow along as I read the first 17 verses of this chapter, you're going to see that he gets it. You're going to see that God grants him favor in some particular kinds of ways, and I will point those out for you as we move along. Beginning in verse 1, we read, After this, he left Athens and went to Corinth, where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them, and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, Your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking, and don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. He stayed there a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal. This man, they said, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. As Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or a serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews. But if these are questions about words, names, and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of such things. So he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But none of these things mattered to Gallio. Now, this is a surprising place and a surprising time for Paul to receive a time of favor. Corinth was a challenging place to try and plant a church. The city rested 46 miles west of Athens. It was a major metropolis. Politically, Corinth was a Roman colony. It occupied prime real estate for facilitating commerce all over the known world. 
but it was also a rather irreputable place. Corinth was known for its sexual immorality. In that day, people described being immoral as living like a Corinthian. And yet Paul sought to plant a church in a city and a culture that had no intention of rolling out the red carpet to King Jesus. This was an intimidating place to plant a church. So you would think that Paul was moving from one difficult stretch to another. But it seems like God has granted him a season of favor and respite. Because in Corinth, he would see a church birthed and he would spend a year and a half teaching God's word there. And the whole time he's doing so, he is not physically harmed. God would protect him from that development. Now I want to identify a few of the forms, a uh, few of the forms God's favor takes in Paul's life as he served in Corinth. The first of which is this. God granted him the favor of new gospel partnerships. Not long after arriving in Corinth, Paul meets a married couple, Aquila and Priscilla. They had recently moved there from Italy because the Emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome. At the time, Rome lumped Jews and Christians together. And, and since Christians were worshiping Jesus as Lord and Christ, that was viewed as a threat to the Pax Romana or the peace of Rome. And so the emperor kicked them all out. He exiled them from Rome. But God in his providence led this power couple to Corinth at just the right time. God leveraged Claudius's edict to establish one of the most fruitful gospel partnerships in all of the book of Acts. In a moment when his people seemed weak, Aquila and Priscilla being forced to move to Corinth, Paul coming to Corinth after a long stretch of ministry challenges, in that moment when they seemed weak, God showed himself strong. He showed himself strong by bringing them together. Now, Aquila and Priscilla may have given Paul the job as, as a tent maker. Because when he first arrived in the city, he had to make ends meet, and he was skilled in tent making, and so were they, and so they partnered together. It's possible that Aquila and Priscilla had already started a tent making business and were in a position to hire Paul so that he could provide for himself. But then they went even further than just giving him a job. This couple ministered to Paul by giving him a place to stay. They showed hospitality to the apostle. So this is an incredible couple. A couple that every gospel-believing couple should seek to imitate. Their marriage was dynamic. Each time one is mentioned in the scriptures, they are both mentioned in the scriptures. They worked and served, they worked and served Jesus as a team. When you come to the end of chapter 18, they take a guy named Apollos aside and they teach him sound theology. And Apollos would later become one of the most dynamic preachers in the early church. So this couple invested their lives and leveraged their marriage towards the purposes of God. And that is one of the deepest meanings of marriage for every follower of Jesus. Marriage does not simply exist for the man and the woman within the relationship. Marriage exists for the sake of the gospel. A marriage is to be a living illustration of the relationship shared between Christ and his church. And if you are in a relationship that's moving towards marriage, let me encourage you to ask a couple of questions. To the guys, if 
if there is a girl that you are pursuing, I want, I want you to consider, is, is the girl you are pursuing devoted to Jesus? Would she follow Jesus even if you didn't? Then to the girls, if there's a guy you are pursuing, I want you to ask, is that guy devoted to the bride of Christ? Does he love the church? If not, then what assurance do you really have that he will be fully devoted to you all the days of your life? Guys, do not marry a woman who is not devoted to Jesus. And gals, do not marry a man who is not devoted to the bride of Jesus. In either case, you will not be able to fulfill one of the deepest purposes of forgetting married in the first place. And before Kim and I decided to get married, we asked God multiple times if we should. We thought through whether or not we'd be more useful in, the, in His purposes, together or apart. Now, in the end, we believe the answer was for us to be together, that we'd be more effective in making disciples as a team. So we got married. Now, that's not true for everyone. Paul, of course, was single. He embraced his singleness as a gift from God that enabled him to more fully devote himself to the purposes of God in the world. And what I love about what's happening in this passage is you have married couples and singles serving Jesus together in the city. And that reminds me of what the Hallows Church looked like when we started in Seattle. Married couples and singles coming together and leveraging their unique life stages to make much of Jesus in our city. And by God's grace, we are continuing to do that today. But then the second form of favor that we find here is the favor of receiving financial support. Of course, Paul, when he first arrived in the city, he had to get a job to make ends meet. He was a skilled tent maker, and so were Aquila and Priscilla and and so they partner together and they, they, they work in that way. So he was supported through the work that he did in the city. He wanted to plant a church there. And, and at first that required him working a job during the week and sharing the gospel on the weekends. So he would enter the synagogue every Sabbath and try to persuade people that Jesus is the Messiah. And his vocation at that moment in time was a necessary and vital part of his mission to Corinth. He got a job so that he could share the gospel. He did what he had to do so that he could do what he was called to do. Now, we don't always see our vocations that way. We think that if we want to serve Jesus in a way that counts, we need to go to work for a church, but that's not true. In fact, God gives us our jobs to provide for us and to provide for his purposes in the world. And we want to leverage our jobs for the sake of the gospel. You know, there are people you work with who will never step into a church building. And if you worked in a church, then you'd never be able to reach them. But God intends for all of us to fulfill the Great Commission through our varied vocations. And you can do that by doing whatever, you, whatever job you have right now, doing that job well. If it's a temporary job that you don't want to do, but you have to do to make ends meet, don't treat it that way. Be fully present where you are right now. Don't assume tomorrow because tomorrow may never come. 
Let's make the most of our moments. Let's work hard. Let's work well. Let's avoid workplace drama. Let's be kind to our coworkers as ambassadors of Jesus. Let's turn our workspace into an altar and devote all that we do to the Lord. This is Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, do it from the heart. As something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. And so I encourage you to prayerfully and proactively look for ways to share the gospel with those you are working with now. And so Paul's financial support when he first arrived in the city came by the work of his own hands. He got a job. But that seems to have changed when his friends Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. Because with Silas and Timothy's arrival came means that would allow Paul to devote himself fully to the ministry of the word. The word devote in verse 5 carries the idea of being absorbed or engrossed in what you were doing. And so it seems that a shift occurred when his buddies arrived. Paul stopped working as a tent maker and, and was able to pour all his time and energy towards sharing the gospel and teaching the scriptures. Previously, he was making tents and preaching as he was able, but now he is financially supported so that he can devote all of his time and all of his attention to the word. Luke seems to be referring to, here to uh, the generous gifts that were given by Macedonian churches, churches like Philippi, who financially supported Paul so that he could devote all of his time and energy to the ministry of the word and the planting of churches. I'll give you a couple of examples of where this kind of comes out in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 4, verse 15, it reads, and you, Philippi, you, and you Philippians Know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. So Philippi took care of Paul. They supported Paul so that he could engage in, in what he was doing for the church. And then when Paul writes to the church in Corinth years later after planting it, he would write first in 2 Corinthians, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19, he, he, met, he reminds them of this. He said, When I was present with you and in need, I did not burden anyone since the brothers who came from Macedonia, that is Silas and Timothy, supplied my needs. Meaning when Silas and Timothy showed up, they brought with them financial support that freed Paul up to give all of his time and all of his energy towards planting and teaching and pastoring the church in Corinth. And as we kind of look at this picture, we begin to see the makeup of our church as well. You know, some of us serve Jesus through our vocations in the city. Others of us serve Jesus as our vocation in the city. And together we are helping people discover the difference Jesus makes in all of life. We need people who are working in the church and are fully supported to devote all of their time and energy towards the mission of the church. And we need people working various vocations in our city, engaging people with the gospel and, and receiving provision to help support the work of the gospel in our city and around the world. 
This is why we are committed to raising up and sending out and supporting church planters and missionaries. I think of Daniel and Stephanie Englehart. I think of Craig and Abby Hall. I think about this upcoming summer when we will receive Stephen and Jessica Serrells, who will join our work here as, as church planters in residence. And they will run with us for a while, then Lord willing, we will have the joy of commissioning and supporting them in their efforts to plant a church in an underreached portion of our city. All of this is made possible because of the financial support provided through the work that you do and the work that we are doing in the church together in our city. And so Paul received the favor of, of financial support while he was in Corinth. And then third, Paul received the favor of reaping spiritual fruit. After sharing the gospel multiple times in a local synagogue, Paul did not find uh, the people there to be very receptive. In fact, most people there resisted Paul's message and they blasphemed, which is what it meant to reject Jesus at that point. To reject Jesus is to reject God. That's why that word is used in the text. And so Paul left the synagogue and he turned his attention to the Gentiles, that is, non-Jewish citizens of the city. He went next door to Titius Justice's house and, and God enabled Paul to reap spiritual fruit. He witnessed people coming to faith, including Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, where he and his whole household followed Paul across the street and they believed the gospel and were baptized. And that night when Paul went to sleep. The Lord appeared to him in a vision. And he said, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. God assured Paul that the time he spent in Corinth would be different than the time he spent elsewhere prior to this. God was giving Paul respite. After much challenge, God is giving him a time of favor. And Paul would have the joy of spending a year and a half teaching the word and reaping much fruit from this newly planted church. Now what I love about the word God gives Paul is, is that it renewed his confidence in the ministry of the word so that he would continue to devote himself to sharing the gospel and teaching the scriptures. And I want to remind you this morning that the reason we preach the word and the reason we teach the scriptures, we do so for the sake of those who will believe it. We don't stop doing it because of those who don't. And if you pay attention to Paul's writings in the New Testament, you will find that he often asked people to pray for favor to fall upon his preaching of the word. Colossians chapter 4, he says, Pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains so that I may make it known as I should. He told the church of Ephesus to pray similarly, similarly. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. And in 1 Thessalonians, Paul thanks God for the favor that fell upon the preaching of the word in the church there. He says, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, 
You accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Man, we, we desire the favor of reaping spiritual fruit the spiritual fruit that accompanies the ministry of the word in our church and in our city. And so we pray for that. We ask God, give us a time of favor. But then there's the fourth and final form of favor that accompanies Paul's time in Corinth. And it consisted of the favor of him being given a fresh experience of the faithfulness of God. He experienced God's faithfulness in a fresh way. You see, God told Paul that he would not be harmed in the city. And so when threat mounted against Paul and against God's word, God's word held true. God's word did what God said it would do. We know that the Jews made a united attack against Paul and they brought him to the tribunal and and they were accusing him of things. And, it, and at that point, Paul's probably thinking, great, I, I have to defend myself again. Things aren't going to be any different here in Corinth than anywhere else that I've gone in my life. And so he, he starts to open his mouth, but he never has to utter a word. He doesn't have to defend himself because God is faithful to the word he gave Paul. God is sovereign over every circumstance. He is sovereign over every person on the planet. And so Gallio dismisses the charges. And in an ironic twist of fate, Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, was punished instead. But in that moment, Paul experienced afresh the faithfulness of God. The word God gave him proved true. And what God would do for him in that moment would energize his faith in all the promises of God that are found in Scripture. And we too want to experience afresh the faithfulness of God. We want to catch glimpses of God's word proving true. Of God's word doing what it's designed to do in our lives and in our church and in our mission. We know that the word accomplishes God's purposes. Isaiah chapter 55. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth, and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. We want that. The word satisfies our souls, Psalm 19. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. We know that the word creates faith in people, so Paul asks, a series of rhetorical questions in Romans chapter 10. How then can they call on him they have not believed in, and how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? He's saying, look, faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes through the word of Christ. But we also know that the word sanctifies people. John chapter 17, Jesus prays, sanctify them, referring to his disciples, sanctify them according to truth, 
Your word is truth. And then the word is what causes the church to grow wherever it is planted, wherever it is watered. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who gives the growth. We want to experience afresh the faithfulness of God. We long to see the word doing all that it declares itself capable of doing in our lives, in our church, in our city, and in our world. That is the type of favor we seek from God. That's what we're asking for when we say, God, give us a time of favor. But let me clarify. Let me make an important clarification regarding favor. And according to the gospel that we believe, God's favor is found in Christ alone. As those who have put our faith in Christ, we are right now, as I speak, favored by God. Our position in Christ is forever favored. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. That's favor. And Paul knew this of himself. He, he did not consider himself to have lost favor when he faced trials of various kinds. So when he's in prison and writing a letter to the church in Philippi, he could say, in any and all circumstance, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So when we ask God to give us a time of favor, we are not asking him to give us something that we've lost. Because in Christ, we are forever favored no matter where we are in this world and no matter what we are going through. That's, in many ways, that's what helps us endure hard times and to persevere in times of trial. No, what we're asking for in this time in the life of our church is we are asking for a time of favor. We're asking for the favor that is ours in Christ to be made manifest in how we serve the mission of Christ. Our relationship with God is dynamic. It is not static. And at times we need, we need respites. We need relief. We need God to help us when we are helpless. We need God's power to be perfected in our weaknesses. We want God to show himself strong for the sake of his name in the city of Seattle and the surrounding world. And so we ask for a time of favor. This is what we are praying together as a church. God, renew our gospel partnerships with each other. Add to our church like-minded disciples who want to make much of Jesus. Provide our people with jobs and a spirit of generosity so that our church might receive all that you deem necessary for us to keep making much of Jesus. God, let the gospel seeds that we have planted and watered, let those seeds bear fruit, bring about growth. Bring in a wave of newborn believers who, can, who we can care for and disciple in the faith. God, grant us fresh expressions of your faithfulness in all of our endeavors. 
God, this is the time of favor that we are asking. And friends, this is the time of favor that I'm encouraging you to ask God for as well. God, thank you for being faithful. Thank you for favoring us in Christ. And we are praying for a time of favor in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, church. We love you. And until next time.